I started here um, in the family program at Sparrow Rock, and um, my wife and I had uh, two young kids at the time. How many of you, by the way, uh, are parents? Just, okay, great. How many of you have had parents? You know, okay, great. So it's family life. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so we had young children, and uh, we had the full storm, you know, of, of like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And we began looking for resources, and we, you know, I'd had myself a pretty long-term spiritual practice and contemplative practice uh, rooted mainly in Buddhism starting back in 1974. Uh, But we had sort of lost touch with resources in the Bay Area. So we turned to Spirit Rock and brought our kids here, and we were just so happy to be able to be part of it. So I uh, was here for a while and got drawn into the uh, family program council, group of people, and then that led to the Spirit Rock board, uh, where I was, as uh, Don said, nine years. Um, and we have term limits uh, for civilians, as it were, uh, people not on the teacher's council at the Spirit Rock Board. And uh, so after nine years, three terms, I termed off, and, which is probably good for all concerned, but anyway. Uh, and meanwhile, I've just seen so many wonderful things happening here. So um, your contributions here tonight go entirely to the family program, uh, supporting it um, and enabling people to do it who have limited means, and spreading, um, you know, the basic teachings of self-awareness and kindness and insight and self-regulation and self-discipline, uh, those basic teachings of Buddhism uh, that are, of course, shared in other traditions of the world in some cases, um, spreading those teachings out into family environments, um, including with uh, these precious innocent beings, these children, upon whom we've inflicted unsuspecting consciousness on the flesh, right? And so we have a great duty to the kids. Um, My very first book was about how to take good care of mothers over the long haul, long past the postpartum period when they tend to fall off the the radar of the healthcare system. So I've had a very long interest in in family life. And our own kids are 26 and 24. Uh, Our son has come home, he's living with us again. Uh, we try not to get on his nerves too much, and um, he doesn't get on our nerves. So I think it's more of a one-way street. But anyway, and our daughter's living in Manhattan where she's working on a dystopian young adult novel while tutoring the SATs. So we'll see how that turns out. Okay, so that's my, my background. And my hope tonight is to do um, a really experiential kind of evening. Uh, if you've ever been to one of my workshops here, usually we have the whole PowerPoint slide set you know, dog and pony show. Uh, For better or worse, we're not going to do that. If you want to see those sorts of slides or other, I'd say, pretty neurologically saturated uh, resources that are freely offered, you can find them on my website, rickhanson.net. But I thought, kind of in keeping with the whole notion of family, and hey, it's Saturday night. I don't know if anyone could tolerate PowerPoint slides on a Saturday night. I want to go much more experiential. So we're going to do experiential stuff, talk about it, experiential stuff, talk about it, experiential stuff. And as I said, if you want more backup or depth having to do with any particular thing, there's tons of freely offered resources on my website. Okay? So logistically, I think in the interest of moving along and covering a lot of ground, I won't take any official breaks. Um, I'll end very, very close to 9 o'clock, maybe even a little bit before. Uh, I know there are probably people who've got to get home, babysitters, whatnot. And I'll stick around happily and talk with people afterward. Okay? Okay. Great. You want to dive in? You want to do something experiential? Of course, if you said no, I'd still do it. But Okay. All right? Okay. Got the... Good? Okay, great. So here's what I suggest, if you like, is we'll just sit quietly for about five minutes, 
And, um, you know, basic mindfulness of breathing, just kind of being here, you know, trying to remain sort of grounded, if not entirely grounded, in the body. But along the way, I encourage you to, from time to time, kind of tag that which is wholesome, moving through awareness. could be a sense of the relaxation that occurs as you exhale. Uh, Maybe from time to time there's an insight into experience, just passing along and not needing to be attached to. Uh, There might be a warm feeling about people nearby. Maybe there's an awareness of some good quality in yourself, some goodness in you. Just kind of tagging it as, oh yeah, this is one thing that leads to happiness and welfare for myself and perhaps other beings as well. One of the real breakthroughs um, in Buddhism 2,500 years ago, uh, in distinction with the kind of prevailing teachings of his time, historically, especially the Jain teachings, was that the Buddha said, you know, even for those who are interested in the absolute upper reaches of human potential, complete liberation, complete awakening, there are many, many, many um, enjoyable experiences that are uh, wholesome means to a wholesome end. In other words, we don't need to turn away from all of living, all of life. There are many factors in the mind and many kinds of experiences that actually lead to good things. They do lead to happiness and welfare for oneself and others. And it's a mistake to be so ascetic or so self-denying or so renounced that we reject those experiences and don't draw upon them and, in effect, resist them or go to war with them. That's not a good path to full awakening, he taught. So it's okay to find the wholesome. And what this evening's about is essentially hardwiring the wholesome into your brain, drawing on the recent neuroscience of what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, the ways in which mental activity can change neural structure and function. And as we'll see along the way, um, the brain is very good at turning unpleasant, unwholesome experiences into neural structure, once burned, twice shy but it's not very good at turning uh, enjoyable, beneficial experiences into neural structure, even though turning good experiences, and I use that word good pragmatically, as the Buddha did, not in a moralistic sense. Turning good experiences, enjoyable, beneficial experiences into neural structure is a weakness of the brain, even though turning good experiences into neural structure is the primary pathway for growing inner resources inside, the inner strengths like loving-kindness, compassion, resilience, determination, moral commitments, and gratitude, and happiness itself, growing those inner strengths that we want to develop in ourselves and in our children and others that we care for. So that's my focus tonight, how to uh, recognize the wholesome, open to the wholesome, don't waste it on your brain, don't let it dribble through your fingers as it routinely happens with this brain we've got, and instead, uh, as the Buddha talked about, really cultivate Cultivate that goodness in your own heart. So let's start with a little practice about this. Okay? So just sit quietly with your eyes open or closed. I'll do much the same. And uh, as I said, just sort of be present. And we're not searching for something wholesome. We're not trying to manipulate the mind. We're simply being aware from time to time of something that might be beneficial, enjoyable, easing, loving, insightful, whatever, that's moving through the mind.
It could be simply the feeling of just being, just sitting, without needing to be doing or planning or worrying. Other things could well be present in the mind. And yet, alongside those other things that are not so enjoyable or so beneficial, could be things like the simple pleasure in the body and being alive. Or gratitude for the opportunity to practice. or warm feelings for others who may come to mind. Or perhaps simply the inherently peaceful space of awareness itself. Okay, come on back. So that was a little experiment, right? Um, What did you notice when you did it? Raise your hand if you'd like me to call on you. And uh, what did you notice when you did that? Did you find anything wholesome, as it were? Please. 
The crickets? Yeah, for me as well. I was like, oh, that's nice. Okay, great. Others? Well, I, I appreciated my own mind realizing that, nah, we really should do a break. So in about an hour, I'll take a 10-minute break. <laughs> and I was just thinking, yeah, that's beneficial. You know, reasoning, thought, you know, planning, correcting your mistakes. That's always a good thing, anyway. Other things you might have noticed in your own experience there? Yeah, please. Yeah. It's like I was still trying to, and I have to drop it and let it go, and then, but this one was like, oh, oh that's great. Yeah, that's a little thing again, real, noticed it. Others, other things you might have noticed that were pleasurable or enjoyable or led to something good, yeah. That's great. That's great. Good. Wholesome sights, wholesome sounds, wholesome sensations, wholesome thoughts, emotions, wishes. Are there things in the mosaic of experience that you noticed? Please? Yeah, that is a very useful, I think, and common recognition. And it's going to be pretty central to what we're doing tonight, so I'm going to kind of spotlight it, if I could. Just um, while there obviously are individual variations on the whole, uh, the brain, because of the way our ancestors evolved, um, is very uh, prone to scanning for bad news and then really focusing narrowly down upon it. Whereas when we tend to be having a, uh, an enjoyable or beneficial experience, as Barbara Fredrickson's research and that of others has shown, we tend to broaden our view rather than narrow. So that's one half of her theory, broaden and build. The other half will be very relevant to our purposes tonight, the ways in which uh, ordinary positive experiences build resources um, inside people as well as inside relationships. And so, so the brain, second, as I said, First, scans for bad news. Second, isolates or narrows down upon it, kind of tunnel vision. Got to deal with this, right? Third, overreacts to it. If you play two sounds for people and inside an MRI and they're equally loud, but one is pleasant and one is unpleasant, the brain will react more, wing, to the unpleasant sound. Okay? And then um, little, another little example of that that's quite remarkable uh, in studies, they'll flash uh, faces, pictures of faces, uh, very, very quickly, less than a tenth of a second often. And they're so fast that a person, a subject in the study, can't tell that it's a face at all. all right? And yet if it's an angry face, their blood pressure will rise and their cortisol will rise as well. Whereas a happy face flashed that quickly can't be recognized in terms of what it is. So we're very quick to recognize expressions of anger. Um, in particular in other people, as well as disgust, because those are two very, very important signals. So yeah, so then third, as I said, overreact to it, and then force, fourth, whoop, 
fast track that whole package into memory. Like I said earlier, once per and twice shy. So for example, we tend to remember, you know, bad information, gossip about other people more than positive information, right? Thus, uh, attack ads in politics or, you know, in a relationship, 10 things happen in a day with that person, nine are positive, one's negative. What's the one you think about and you're falling asleep, you know? Um, um, People are very, very vulnerable to learning help to learning helplessness, acquiring a sense of helplessness, uh, because it's so quick to get a sense of just defeat and I can't do anything. And it takes many times as many experiences to unlearn that. So yeah, it's exactly right. That's why, uh, as a context here, uh, one, I don't believe in positive thinking. I believe in realistic thinking. As you kind of saw in your own experience, experience is a mosaic, right? With to kind of use a simplistic sort of language, good tiles, bad tiles, and neutral tiles, in effect. Much as reality out there, you know, materiality altogether, um, is like a mosaic as well. Things that seem good and beneficial, things that seem harmful, and things that are kind of neutral, right? And we've got a brain that tends to be designed to see the bad, to really look for that bad. And so for me, looking for the good uh, is very aligned with the Buddha's de- core teaching that the fundamental root of suffering is ignorance. It's not seeing the way it really, really, really is in terms of our inner experience and the outer world. Right? So that's kind of a frame here. It's not to deny the bad or minimize it or disown it or suppress it or um, ignore it or to you know, not deal with it. Obviously, we need to deal with it both out there and in here. But it's to also really appreciate that there are many, many other things that are happening as well. And one of the reasons to do this is there's a fundamental model in healthcare and psychology altogether called the stress diathesis model. And it basically means that a person's course over a day or over a week or a year or a lifetime is a product of just three variables. It boils down to just three kinds of factors, the big three, challenges, vulnerabilities, and resources. To use kind of a metaphor, if you're uh, doing dishes, let's say, in germ-filled water, that's a challenge. But uh, unless you have a cut on your hand, you're pretty good to go. But if you do have a cut on your hand, that's your vulnerability. That's your chink in the armor through which the challenge can penetrate to get to you. But if you put, but if you put on a pair of uh, gloves, you know, those yellow rubber gloves or something, that protects you. That's your resource to protect your vulnerability from that challenge. So all are important to deal with, you know, reduce challenges, protect vulnerabilities, shore up resources. Uh, Clearly, as challenges and vulnerabilities rise, uh, so much resources. I'm a practicing therapist, and routinely I'm seeing situations where the challenges are this high, but the resources are that high. We need to scale up resources in proportion to the challenge. So... Having said that all are important, challenges, vulnerabilities, resources, generally speaking, I think resources have the most opportunity because it's kind of slow to change those challenges often, and it takes a while to shore up those vulnerabilities, but resources can be grown fairly quickly. Where can resources be found? Out there in the world, in the body, or in the mind, to simplify. Again, all are important places to grow resources, whether it's money in your bank account out there in the world or improving the healthcare system in a society altogether out there in the world. That's important. 
also growing resources in the body. I try to remember this when I, you know, get myself to get back on that treadmill and, you know, stave off old age and disease and death one more day or something like that. All right, okay. Grow resources in the body. But we can also grow resources in the mind. Resilience, determination, self-confidence, feeling loved, loving others, uh, self-awareness, insight, understanding, various skills, interpersonal skills, and so forth. All three are important domains to grow resources in. But the one that strikes me is very often where the most opportunity is, is to grow resources in the mind. Inner strengths, like the ones I've named. All right? I'm not speaking against growing resources elsewhere or addressing challenges and vulnerabilities, but my focus here, certainly tonight, is about growing mental resources because I think that's typically a highly leveraged intervention. A little bit of effort can produce a big result that can have big effects. Right? And that's where the territory is. Um, how many of you have some background in Buddhism or Buddhist psychology? Any at all? Okay, great, good. Half the room at least. You know, for example, uh, the so-called seven factors of awakening in Buddhism are mental resources. They're not metaphysical. They're not spiritual. Uh, they're not transcendental. They are mindfulness, which pres- sustain present moment awareness, uh, investigation, um, energy, uh, bliss, tranquility, uh, concentration, and equanimity. Right? Those are all inner resources, much as compassion or loving kindness or happiness at the welfare of others are inner resources in a Buddhist frame. Or other things like wisdom or uh, morality, restraint, virtue. Those are all inner resources. That's what we want to grow. Right? The question is how to grow. And inside the frame of, what, of modern science and certainly neuropsychology, inner resources are built in the body, basically. And particularly in the nervous system, particularly headquartered in the brain. So that's going to be my focus here, how to actually grow those resources in the brain. Clear so far? Questions or comments? See the frame? Yeah, zeros are right in. Okay, good. So, want to start growing some good resources? You're right. Like, who's going to say no? Anyway. Okay, so I thought we could start with a little experiential thing again. And this one's about noticing the actual fact, uh, most of the time it's a fact, that your body's actually basically all right, right now. Now, Mother Nature doesn't really want you to notice that. Because animals back in the day, you know, the nervous system's been evolving for 600 million years. Animals back in the day that had been listening to Jack Cornfield, you know, in a time machine. Oh, yeah, super chill, just kind of hanging. Light on the leaves, light on the water. Just kind of being here. Chomp! They got eaten, right? Because they weren't looking around. They didn't notice the shadow overhead or the crackle in the brush nearby. You know, the ones that lived to see the sunrise and pass on genes that passed on genes. They were nervous and anxious and cranky. You know? We're their great-grandchildren right here today, sitting on the top of the food chain, armed with nuclear weapons. All right. Let's, we, our challenges are pretty clear. Okay. So anyway, so you might find that, as I have certainly, that it's surprisingly difficult to register the actual experience of the body being basically all right right now because Mother Nature always wants us to be a little afraid. It's kind of this ongoing trickle of delusional anxiety uh, that, you know, is there to keep us on our toes even when there's nothing that we need to be on our toes about actually in this moment. On the other hand, it's also true that most of the inputs coming into the brain originate from within the body. 
For example, in evolution, the uh, internally directed senses of smelling, because those are molecules that have landed on the body, taste, molecules in the mouth, and especially interoception, sensing um, the internal state of the body, those senses arose long before ex more externally directed senses, such as hearing or uh, seeing. So, you know, the brain needs to know the state of the body all the time. It's really important. Most of the time, the inputs coming up into the brain from within the body are like the calls of a night watchman or watchwoman, if there were such things, certainly back in the day. All is well. All is well. So we're going to do a little practice here about noticing a beneficial experience that's already happening, typically in the background of awareness, and try to move it to the foreground, and then register it more and more deeply to stabilize increasingly a sense, when it's true, of I'm basically all right right now. I still need to deal with challenges in life. I'm not going to get complacent. I'm not going to lower my guard if it's inappropriate, but I'm going to have the peace that comes from registering and recognizing in a felt way again and again, I'm basically all right right now. Okay. By the way, toward the end, I'm very interested in applications of this for children, if that brings any of you here, or how to do this in relationships, including um, in couples, right? Because as a lot of research shows, uh, the greatest challenge to a couple typically is the arrival of children. And I lived a nightmare myself. Right? <laughs> and I'm still married, so there you go. Okay, you want to try this? Here we go. So if you could, just kind of, again, we'll sit quietly. And with your eyes open or closed, try to move to the foreground of awareness, this ongoing background experience that's very easily overlooked, that the body's actually okay. It may not be perfect, there may be pain, there may be discomfort, there may be you know, anxiety or depression or irritability floating around the perimeter there. And still, in this moment, there's enough air to breathe. The body may not have been basically all right in the past. It may not be basically all right in the future. But now, and now, you can have the felt recognition that you're actually all right right now. So I'll be quiet for a few moments as you foreground this experience, as you locate it, and keep pulling it back toward the front of the stage of awareness. All right, right now. And then as you start to have this experience, enough air, the heart is beating, there's an ongoing aliveness, no shark is chewing on your leg in this moment, there's not overwhelming, agonizing pain, at least in this moment. And just as you register the simple sense of being basically all right, you might notice that you can stay with this experience. You can enrich it by staying with it, by prolonging it, sustaining it, by letting it grow in your mind and becoming more intense, 
feeling it more in your body with a letting go of unnecessary bracing or guarding or tension. In other words, you can really marinate increasingly in feeling all right, right now. In meditative terms, it's like a mini concentration practice, an absorption practice. You might also get the sense of this feeling of being all right, which could have a sense of relief with it or calming, can spread inside you as if you are absorbing it, as if you are like a kind of sponge into which the feeling of being all right is spreading. Or as if a kind of easing is moving out into your body. Feeling all right is sinking into you as you sink into it. Okay, come on back. Great. We'll do a number of little practices tonight uh, to explore uh, how to change the brain for the better. So what did you notice in that little practice? Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, and uh, people have asked me before, how do you fall asleep so fast? And I never have an answer because the answer is not that I clear my mind, because that's what I think that I'm doing, mm-hmm. but that's the first time I ever noticed that's what I'm doing. I start here and say, I'm okay. Yeah. And then I spread it a little further, and usually it only gets about sort of about 10 inches away from the front of my face, and I'm asleep. And sometimes it has to go out like to the pillow, the bed, the room, yeah. and beyond. 
Oh, good. Well, thank you. Those insomniacs in the room probably are listening carefully, but really appreciate that. Um, that's great. Thank you. Other, peop- other people, what did you notice? Yeah, please. Do you want the mic? Nah, I think we're okay with that. Thank you. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you. Yeah. So alongside uh, kind of focus, the focus often are other wonderful beneficial experiences that are available to us as well, mixed up with it. Yeah. Maybe another one more person? Yeah. It was really interesting because I'm a psychologist and I know about how you go right for the negative. So I went right for the negative and went, oh my God, my neck hurts. Yeah. And then I went... Oh, and I kind of just scanned my whole body, and I thought, but my feet feel well, my legs feel great, my whole, you know, everything else really feels, so by the time I was done, I don't know, I was smiling through it, but I found that when I got to the end before you stopped us, it was, and my neck didn't hurt as much. Uh Aha, that's very nice. And that's, I think, what happens when you focus on this wellness on this I'm okay right when it's true and sometimes we're not all right right now I mean I've done a number of things in wilderness rock climbing I I nearly drowned one time and there were moments when I wasn't all right right now in that instant (laughs) right and so you know we're not talking about lying about like I said I don't believe in positive thinking you know I just right and it wasn't about positive I didn't lie and say oh my neck doesn't hurt right but it was about where I put my attention yeah That's good. I actually find that this practice of recognizing the truth, and it's a felt recognition, the, the felt recognition of being all right right now, especially as the body, um, is very fundamental as a practice for me, and it's more and more I come to it. And I, I try to expand the space in which I can sustain that experience while engaging life, you know, including dealing with challenges. So yeah, and... I used it uh, uh, as a way to illustrate the little practice we did there, the two-stage process of changing the brain, the two-stage process of learning. So I'd like to just talk about that, and then we can apply it to other things as well. So the way um, learning proceeds, and I'm summarizing here thousands of studies on the neuropsychology of learning, studies on uh, humans and other animals, and by learning, I'm including, not, I'm, I'm really focused here, not so much on what's two plus two or the multiplication tables, right? But emotional learning, motivational learning, spiritual learning, self-actualization learning, healing learning, growth, right? And those, all that learning basically proceeds in a two-stage way, from short-term memory buffers to long-term storage, or to say, it, say the same thing a little differently, from state to trait, or to say the same thing a little differently, from activation to installation. First point, we don't have 
current technology, at least like in the movie The Matrix, you know, where they hook Neo up to a cable and suddenly could fly a helicopter or, or you know, or that, do kung fu, whatnot. Uh, no, the brain is old school. It's more like a cassette recorder or a modern DVR. You've got to record the song by playing it. We need to have the experience in the first place. We need to start with what's in that short-term memory buffer. We need to start with a state, an activated state. To simplify experience, we need to be having an experience, right? You may know the famous saying, neurons that fire together, wire together, from the Canadian psychologist, his work, Donald Hebb. Um, And while it's true that neurons that fire together do so throughout the nervous system, they really do so for what's held in uh, uh, conscious awareness, what we experience, and in particular, what's under the focused field of attention. All right. So we have an activated state. That's where we start. So I started here with you with um, a state, an experience, having the experience, especially in the foreground of awareness, of feeling all right to the extent that you could have it, to the extent that you could activate that experience to get it going. But then to get it to turn into something of lasting value, we need to install it in the brain in terms of some kind of lasting change in neural structure or function. No installation, no learning. That has huge implications. The experience was pleasant in the moment. It was better than a stick in the eye, but it had no lasting value. (laughs) Dribbled right through the brain, like water through a sieve. Meanwhile, negative experiences get caught very, very quickly. We tend to learn much faster from pain than from pleasure, for example. And... um, so you see this two-stage process, activation, installation. You know, in real estate, it's said that it boils down to three things, right? You've heard this before, location, location, location. Learning really boils down to three things, installation, installation, installation. But I think the dirty little secret in psychotherapy, I say this as a practicing therapist, mindfulness training, coaching, human resources development, character education for children, is that most beneficial states do not get installed. They're wasted on the brain, which flattens the learning curve. How many of you um, are therapists or coaches? Only that. Such a small group. That's unusual. Okay. Well, I could give you a little example of that, but I won't because it'd be more interesting for those people. But you see the larger point? You know, and I, I think to myself how with my, our kids or my clients I'd be, or myself, I'd be very focused on activating some kind of useful state. You know, if you think about experience, it has five aspects, basically. Thought, both verbal and nonverbal. Nonverbal being things like imagery um, or nonverbal reasoning. Uh, Perception, you know, sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, especially uh, the the touch aspect of sensing. What's the body feeling of an experience? Third, emotion, both passing feelings and lasting moods. Fourth uh, aspect of experience would be desire, wants wishes, longings, intentions, purposes, cravings, addictions, aspirations. And then last, behaviors, both the enactment in the moment uh, that we feel as we do it, as well as uh, the capabilities that we can recognize inside ourselves. Okay, so far? So, if we're going to, you know, I, I think about how fascinated I've been with various aspects of experience, you know, and how deliberate I've been about activating those or calling them up or evoking them or encouraging them and my kids or clients, students, whatnot. But it's so easy to overlook the step 
of installation. Because if we don't take the time to allow that experience to transfer from short-term memory buffers into long-term storage, and if we don't do various other things, which I'll talk about in a bit, to encourage that encoding process, the learning curve from that moment, from that episode, that 5, 10, 20 second episode of an experience, is pretty flat. Something kind of sort of dribbles in, maybe, but the learning curve is very, very flat. So what my interest is a lot is how to learn, in effect. Learning how to learn. Getting good at getting good, in effect. How do we steepen that learning curve, you know, bit by bit, minute by minute, over the course of our own lives and those of others that we're helping? So let's talk about how to do installation. So you see the two-stage process, mm-hmm. right? Installation really matters. All right. How does installation occur? Well, if you think about it, installation has two aspects to it. Uh, one aspect is we want the experience to be as rich as possible. Get those neurons really firing together for as long as possible, intensely as possible, all over the place as possible. Okay. Get, have the ex- enrich the experience. But also, to accelerate installation, to increase installation, we can prime memory systems, we can sensitize them so they're more efficient and effective at turning this state into some kind of lasting structure. You see the distinction between the two? Okay, great. So, in effect, to use the metaphor of a fire, first we light the fire. We're having a beneficial experience in the first place. Usually because we just notice one we're already having. Oh, I notice I'm actually all right right now. And there's enough air to breathe. My heart is still beating. My body's okay. You know, I notice I'm okay. Uh, or, you know, I'm just rolling along and noticing the sound of the crickets. Pleasant, you know, experience. Or someone smiles and I feel kind of good. That's a nice experience I'm already having. Or we create it. In a little bit, I'll do a practice with you about deliberately creating a positive experience, such as, for example, calling up feelings of compassion for other people, or deliberately calling up the body memory of, in my case, rock climbing, this and feeling strong inside if I have to be firm or assertive in a situation, for example. Either way, we get that experience going, right? But how do we um, really... Uh, so we got the fire going. In the second step, enriching. Now we're beginning to move into installation, right? We protect the fire. We don't just move on to the next thing, lickety-split, right? We're so distractible these days. We also push back against the negative voices that say, oh, this isn't real, or you're not allowed to have this experience, or don't be feeling too good because that's when they whack you, right? (laughs) Stuff like that, or whatever the case might be. Um, We protect it, and we add fuel to it. We open to it. We try to encourage it to fill the body. We try to feel it more deeply, um, help it be more intense, so the fire burns more brightly, right? Light the fire, fuel to the fire, and then in the third aspect, the absorbing aspect of installation, ah, we warm ourselves with the fire, and we absorb its heat into ourselves, okay? So I've created this acronym HEAL, H-E-A-L, that summarizes the two-stage process of uh, learning. Uh, H stands for have. Have that beneficial experience in the first place. And to be clear, I'm not saying we should resist negative experiences. Life has suffering, right? And some painful, unpleasant experiences have great teachings for us, you know, such as healthy remorse or lessons we learn, um, you know, with other people. Uh, But on the whole... Most of the ways in which we grow in our strengths is by having experiences of them. 
that are then encoded in neural structure, and those experiences tend to be enjoyable in their own right. Okay? So, we have this experience, and then we enrich it. There are five major factors of enriching that really tend to increase encoding. Um, that's e the E for heal for me. One is duration. The longer we sustain the experience, the more it encodes in structure. Second, intensity. The more intense the experience, the more it encodes in structure. Third, multimodality. The more felt it is, the more of the five aspects of experience we draw upon, the more it encodes in structure. Another one is novelty. The more we're willing to look at our experiences with don't know mind. You know the saying, beginner's mind, Zen mind. Um, looking at our experience with the eyes of a child, seeing what's fresh about it. It will uh, register more deeply in us. And then last, what's called salience or personal relevance. Why would it matter to me to recognize that I'm actually basically all right right now? All right? So those are five well-known factors for E for enriching. And then there's A for absorbing, in which we prime memory systems by intending and sensing that the experience is really sinking in. And then the optional step in the H-E-A-L, HEAL acronym, the HEAL process, is to link positive material experienced at the same time as negative material, with the positive material being more prominent in the foreground of awareness. For example, feeling cared about, being really present and prominent in awareness, while off to the side is perhaps not feeling so cared about. That gives us the acronym HEAL. We all know how to do this. It's natural. We just don't tend to do it that often, or frankly, I think, speaking certainly of myself, that skillfully, unless we're really trying to do it. But that's the opportunity for us, right? And we can use these methods, these general methods of activation, installation, and various well-known factors, well-established in research that um, increase installation to grow the good inside ourselves or in others we care about. And when we do this, just to wrap up, and then maybe soon we'll take a little break here, um, it gives us an opportunity to go through daily life looking for the good facts that are all around us, not ignoring the bad ones, but seeing the good ones, letting the recognition of those good facts engender a um, good experience. So we feel something, right? So often we go, oh yeah, I finished that, whatever. Oh yeah, you're nice, whatever. Oh, yeah, you still want to be married to me, whatever. You know, like, oh, yeah, ain't dead yet, whatever, right? And we recognize the facts. We're not, delu you know, we're not psychotic, but we don't feel anything. So the second thing is to feel something. And then in particular, once we're feeling it, now it's activated, we're having it, don't waste it on the brain, right? Take the extra 5, 10, 20 seconds to really stay with it. Enjoy it. Create sanctuary for it in the mind so it really lands inside growing the good inside ourselves. And that's a profoundly powerful process. It's easy to do in the flow of everyday life. That's usually when we do it. Um, bits and pieces here, bits and pieces there. It's a great practice with spiritual insights. A kind of opening occurs, helping it consolidate, helping it stabilize, helping it land. You know, letting the good lessons of life really land in the heart as we go through life. And also, in addition to just doing it in the flow of life, it's very powerful to do this kind of thing at particular times, like just before bed, when you're falling asleep and the brain's very spongy, or upon first waking, or at the end of meditation, or a workout, or a yoga session, or a nice conversation with a friend, or at meals, for example. Okay? So, 
that's kind of an overview of what I hope to explore with you tonight, uh, and we'll get more and more into the detail of it. Any quick questions about what I've said so far, and then we'll take a little break. Yeah, great. Uh-huh. Do you think that that kind of somatic psychotherapy can be helpful with the installation? Oh, so I'll, I'll repeat the question. Do I think that somatically oriented psychotherapies or other similar practices can be helpful with installation? And I would say very much yes. I did not invent, obviously, the neuropsychology of learning. Um, and nor these major factors that lead to increased encoding. What has interested me is really applying this body of research in practical ways that have, I think, really been right under our nose a lot. We've really underestimated the importance of installation and haven't had the humility, frankly, and the modesty to realize that at the conceptual levels of the brain, the cortical, recent cortical levels, um, things happen really quickly. Thought proceeds quickly. You can learn something intellectually pretty fast, right? But... Emotional learning, motivational learning, transformational learning, life-changing learning, healing learning, right? Shifting mood, changing outlook. That proceeds mainly through memory systems that are really rooted in subcortical areas like the hippocampus or systems um, that are 200 million years old. They're slower. You've got to slow it down for it to really land, to really change the heart. Right? And it takes a kind of humility to do that, a kind of modesty that I think of as a sort of cultural disobedience these days. We're so quick to change channels and move on, the next new thing, and I go, no, wait, wait, it's okay. I want to let this one land, you know. Um, yeah, okay. So definitely, and to be clear, many, many uh, people who are powerful teachers, uh, like the ones you've named, powerful therapists, just intuitively, naturally use these methods, Right. And what interests me is to understand why we do what we do that works and to do it even more skillfully, to really steepen that learning curve. You know, it may sound complicated, and, but it really boils down to two important technical words. Ready? Mo better. <laughs> in other words, more episodes in which we have useful, beneficial experiences that we're learning from. And second, in those episodes you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 seconds at a time, typically, sometimes a little longer, usually quite quickly. In those episodes, more beta, more depth of engagement. You know, and the gradual accumulation of mobetas, right, increase the learning curve for a person at the end of the day. You know, how much have you grown over the course of a day? And that little increment, that little bit, may not be that much, but you add that increment up day after day after day after day after day after day after day, suddenly it makes an enormous difference over time. Okay, maybe one more person, then I'll, or a few, and we'll take a break, okay? Yeah. I have um, two thoughts. Yeah. Well, if I understand you right, we can really internalize thoughts. For example, um, you know, in my 20s, I realized that growing up, I'd been a nerd, but not a wimp. That was a useful thought. 
and especially for a guy. And uh, I wanted to let that one land. I've had, I had another moment, speaking of family programs, uh, where my wife and I just had our child, and a, a very dear friend of us was coming to town, and he and I were going to go off sailing for the day. And we'd previously, before having children, my wife and I had done, um, you know, we got together, obviously, but we had done like weekend days sort of independently and so forth. And so I said, oh, by the way, honey, uh, Bob and I are going to go sailing. You know, Forrest was in her lap. He was about three days old or three weeks old, you know, like a little worm, just kind of like lying there all pink and swaddled. And I said, sorry, hon, I, you know, Bob and I are going to go sailing. We'll come back and have dinner with you, you know. She looked at me like, are you kidding? Are you insane? And I suddenly realized that I was. And I needed, I, I needed to take her into account in an absolutely different kind of way. And I realized in that moment my life had fundamentally changed. Yeah, yes, so it helped. But you know, enlightened self-interest. I have a good, I have a keeper of a wife. But anyway, I'm very lucky there. But yeah, you, there are places where, you, or you realize, you know, if I can't drink moderately, I can't drink at all, and I can't drink moderately. So, you know, or you just realize, wow, never again am I going to, you know, touch my child in anger. You know, you realize something. There's a place, or in cognitive therapy, you realize, wow, it's not my fault that my partner drinks, or wow. Um, you know, growing up, my parents were crazy, not me, or something like that, right? So we can help those ideas land. And I think there's a place for that. But where really the bulk of the action is, I think, for our suffering and our freedom is in more emotional, somatic, motivational kinds of learning. Too. Okay. Yeah, that's right. It's a great question. And briefly, what I'd say is, one, what's nice about this approach is the recognition that most of the experiences that grow the good inside ourselves are themselves enjoyable. In other words, we grow compassion inside. We become more compassionate by repeatedly installing experiences of compassion. We grow gratitude inside by repeatedly having experiences in which we're appreciative and thankful that are then installed in the brain. And most of those experiences are pleasurable. In the terms of Buddhist psychology, the feeling tone, or in Western psychology, the hedonic tone, they're pleasant. That's motivating right there. One. Two, um, I think what starts to happen for people is fairly quickly they realize, and I'm going to get to this right after the break, that there are particular experiences that are really the ones that are high-impact, high-value experiences that really fill the hole in your heart. And when you start being aware of what are those key experiences, you look for them, and you listen to the longings in your heart, and you let your longings be your teacher. And that's very powerful. And also, if you're interested in it, you get good at getting good. You know, you do a little bit, like, uh, you know, like, okay, you practice it. Like, what's it really mean to, and in longer workshops or longer trainings, I would do this with you, but you can do it on your own. What's the difference between duration and intensity? Okay, you can see the difference. Um, How can I open to my experience more fully? All right, what is it to look at an experience, see its novelty, to recognize its freshness? And what's it like to recognize the salience or personal relevance of an experience? Those various 
factors of enriching. And also, what's it really like to receive this experience, to come into an intimacy with it, so it really, really sinks in, while at the same time, letting go of it and not clinging to it, which is really an art, right? And that's the sweet spot. So with practice, people get better and better at that. And I think some research is beginning to suggest that much as the brain very rapidly becomes sensitized to the bad through stressful, painful, even especially traumatic experiences. So it becomes even more reactive right, to them in the same way, but in the other direction. The brain can, come in, can become increasingly sensitized to the good. Its basic setting by nature, by evolution, Mother Nature is to be like Velcro for the bad, but Teflon for the good, yeah. right? But with training and practice, we can develop a brain, and research is beginning to indicate this, that becomes more efficient at converting positive experiences into neural structure. It becomes faster at learning from them. Um, and in fact, the brain can become more like Velcro for the good and Teflon for the bad. 